Reading about Joe Biden's nominees for cabinet posts these days feels a little like getting your political horoscope read. No one knows what any of these people will actually do. So instead, smart folks are reading the tea leaves, digging up old articles people have written, speeches they've given, trying to predict the future. It does seem like Joe Biden has put a high premium on people that he has a personal comfort level with. Peter Beinart is no astrologer. He's a historian and a political scientist. I asked him to come on not just to speculate about what happens now, but to build a case. Because one of the other things that's happening at the moment is people like Peter are floating their best ideas in public, trying to shape what happens now. Peter's expertise is foreign policy. He says he looks at who Joe Biden has named to a variety of key positions, his preferred secretary of state and national security advisor. And already he sees a pattern. I do think it's a legitimate criticism of this team that you do not have an intellectual outlier, somebody who I think stands outside of some of the basic assumptions that are held by the kind of foreign policy establishment of the Democratic Party. What Peter's talking about here is a kind of ethos of American power, summed up best by Joe Biden himself in an essay he wrote for Foreign Affairs magazine earlier this year. It was called, Why America Must Lead Again. This is a phrase that comes up again and again. Another phrase that you hear a lot from Biden and his his advisors is essentially, America has to organize the world because if we don't organize the world, Either no one will and there will be chaos or some other uh, malevolent actors will organize it and that won't be good for us. And I think there are a lot of problems with this way of imagining uh, the way the world works. First of all, I think it simply overemphasizes the amount of power that the United States has today. That the United States share of of the world's GDP is now about one-seventh as opposed to one quarter at the end of the Cold War and one half at the beginning of the Cold War. You're saying that our influence is out of proportion. It sounds almost like a kind of hubris. I think that the expectation that the United States can be the dominant custodian of world order, it does not take account of how significantly America's relative power, economic power, and also I would say kind of soft power, power of prestige has diminished and is still diminishing. Today on the show, Peter lays out the case for a fundamental shift in the way Americans see themselves and the world. And he hopes Joe Biden's foreign policy team is listening. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Peter's views about American leadership aren't exactly popular 
in some Washington political circles. That's because, for years, most American diplomats have seen themselves as essential players on the world stage. Peter does think the U.S. can be helpful abroad, but that argument that if America dialed back its dominance, chaos would ensue, Peter's not buying it. I'm not against the United States' involvement and partnership uh, or solidarity at all. What I am against is the notion that we believe that we have some unique right and ability to, as you said, and as Biden said, sit at the head of the table. There may be moments when we sit at the head of the table, but um, I think that the problem with this metaphor of sitting at the head of the table is it does not acknowledge that we have the capacity to do, to not only to do good, but to do enormous harm. Um, And that when we essentially give ourselves the right to set the rules ourselves, we don't take sufficient account of the fact that we are not even often abiding by those rules. Um, We and no other country left the Paris Climate Agreement. We and no other signatory to the Iran nuclear deal left the Iran nuclear deal. We and in the middle of a pandemic and no other country left the World Health Organization. We violated, we invaded Iraq in clear violation of international law. We have basically made the World Trade Organization dysfunctional because we have vetoed all appointments to its main panel. We have our record of not ratifying international treaties on things like preservation of the oceans, the rights of women, children, and the disabled, the the regulation of arms sales, the regulation of the cluster bombs, nuclear non-proliferation, Uh, war war crimes and genocide is unparalleled among any country in the world. And I think the American exceptionalist narrative, which simply takes American innocence as a given, so that when we do things that are wrong, it's simply a mistake, it's out of character. But when other countries uh, do things that, that violate international law, that's a reflection of who they really are. I just think a lot of people in the world don't buy that. Well, I want to talk about when you began to see this this way, because my understanding is that you haven't always had this perspective. What was the turning point for you looking back? I think that um, I, like some others of my age, my generation, which is kind of Generation X, which is the generation of, of some of Biden's top foreign policy advisors, I think we're very influenced by the events of the 1990s, America's victory in the Cold War, the intervention in the in the, the Gulf War in 1991 that America won, the the debates over America's interventions in Bosnia in 1995 and Kosovo in 1999, where after a lot of fear that these might end up like Vietnam, they actually ended up being interventions that at least appeared at the time as if we had done something good by stopping ethnic cleansing. I think this set of experiences, the 90s was a period of expanding democracy, a period where America raised its budget deficit, I think led to an excessive faith on my behalf in both American power and American virtue in in, in terms of the way we practiced foreign policy overseas. You note that people that are slightly older than you have a different perspective because, of course, they were around for the Vietnam War. And so... When your generation came in, there was a little bit of a clash. Yes. One of the things I, I noticed, and I, I wrote about this a little bit in um, a book I wrote called The Icarus Syndrome, was that many of the people who were warning about 
the potential for a Vietnam-style disaster in the 1990s were people who had lived through the Vietnam War. And I think for those of us who were younger, when the Gulf War and, and Bosnia and then Kosovo did not turn into Vietnam-style quagmires, I think it led us wrongly to kind of disregard Vietnam as a important analogy, an important warning for American foreign policy. So that when uh, this sense of self-confidence in American power was supercharged by the by 9-11, the Vietnam analogy by that point didn't have nearly as much salience in the debate as it should have. And then, of course, we ended up going into Iraq and Afghanistan. Right. You know, one of the things that I spent uh, quite a few years trying to grapple with after uh, the Iraq War, which the magazine I edited, The New Republic, supported, was um, what were the uh, intellectual assumptions that led me to this kind of hubristic view that the United States could, outside of the framework of international law, um, uh, overthrow a government and then reconstitute its society in a way that made things better. Part of what makes Peter feel so strongly about this is that he's watched as even humanitarian interventions have terrible outcomes. It's important to remember that the Iraq War was partly justified as a humanitarian effort to to remove a, a horrific dictator. Libya, which maybe will go down as the kind of the end of the era of American humanitarian intervention, was justified that way. Muammar Gaddafi, the leader who ruled Libya for four decades by crushing the opposition, could himself be crushed by a popular uprising. The U.S. calls it a reign of violence by Colonel Muammar Gaddafi and his cohorts, and it's setting in motion a range of options to stop it. Nothing is off the table. When he was asked about his worst mistake as president back in 2016, Barack Obama's immediate answer was the U.S. intervention in Libya. Despite his best intentions, Obama acknowledged that after killing Muammar Gaddafi, there simply wasn't a good enough plan. In Libya, when the Arab Spring broke out, you saw a rebellion against the long-serving dictator Muammar Gaddafi. And Gaddafi responded to that by um, uh, cracking down very brutally against the rebels, and he appeared on the verge of an even more brutal crackdown. And there was some interest among America's European allies in at least using air power to stop him from being able to do that. And the Barack Obama reluctantly agreed to join with uh, Britain and France and other NATO allies to do that. And it then turned, ultimately, what that led to was the overthrow of Gaddafi. But Gaddafi was not replaced by a kind of uh, a government that could represent all of the Libyan people and bring a functional liberal democratic government. What ultimately happened was the country fractured into into different factions who kept fighting with one another. And the two factions were supported by different groups. And so ultimately what Libyans got instead of a brutal dictatorship was civil war and a failed state. And that led Obama um, and others to question whether we had done the right thing by intervening militarily. Yeah. When the United States was considering an intervention, I wonder what that conversation was in Washington. 
I think there were folks who felt that it would be a stain on America's conscience if we simply stood by and let Gaddafi carry out what looked like there could be mass killings. And I totally understand that that impulse. Um, I think it comes from a genuinely good place. And yet, I think one of the really hard lessons, painful lessons that I think um, people have learned is that states can be fragile and and the alternative to a brutal dictator is not necessarily an inclusive liberal democratic government. Oftentimes what dictators leave in their wake, especially if they're toppled militarily, is state collapse, um, especially if the United States is not willing to invest and its ally and its partners invest massively in a project of nation building as we were not willing to do in Libya. So it's hard to look at Libya today, which remains a failed state in a, in a state of civil war with many outside actors preying upon it and say that Libya is better off because the U.S. intervened. And we're talking about Joe Biden and, and his team and, and what they might mean for U.S. intervention and this idea of American exceptionalism. And I think it's important when we talk about a circumstance like Libya, these characters have been around for a long time, like the incoming Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, he was there for that decision. And as I recall, he and Joe Biden disagreed about what to do. Yes. Interestingly, um, Blinken was more interventionist on Libya than Biden was. Um, you know, they remain very close, but their instincts have been a little bit different. Again, I think Blinken himself is probably chastened by that experience. But um, I think that my larger concern about Biden and his this team has to do with whether they are um, creating a set of expectations around what a kind of multilateral U.S. foreign policy can do that are unrealistic given the power dynamics that actually exist. Yeah. I mean, it. it I see this incoming team of Joe Biden's having some of the same questions and ideas that you do. Like, I was looking at something that Blinken said when he talked about Syria and how he explicitly says, you know, we sought to avoid another Iraq by not doing too much. But we made the opposite error of doing too little in Syria. And I wondered what you thought about that, because it's another circumstance where, of course, you could go in with the best of intentions, but you're right. Like, nation building is a lot of work, and we haven't really shown that we're great at sticking around and doing it once the military side of things are over. So I wonder, looking at, for instance, Syria and, and Blinken's perspective on that, do you think he's toying with some of the same ideas that you are of American exceptionalism and, and how we should live that in the world or not? I am very sympathetic to the fact that given how horrific the, the situation in Syria has been, that, that Tony Blinken feels agonized about it. I think he should feel agonized about it. I think that's a, you know, that's a credit to him. We want people who, who, who feel agonized when there's enormous human suffering. But it does not, can, I am not convinced of the argument that um, that things would have turned out better had the U.S. aggressed, intervened more aggressively. And I think given 
this set of experiences that we've seen from Iraq to Libya to Afghanistan, I think the onus has to be now on people who want the United States to intervene aggressively in regime change operations to be able to prove convincingly that there's a very strong likelihood of a positive outcome, given that we have seen so many negative outcomes over the last two decades. After the break, just how badly has America damaged its own reputation abroad? This episode is made possible by PwC. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. At PwC, we pair the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. That's human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. I wonder if you think President Trump's term has been kind of an experiment here, because while Trump involved himself abroad a bit, like in North Korea, in the Middle East, the last four years, the U.S. has withdrawn from the international stage. What have, What's happened when we did that? Well, I don't think it's quite right to say the United States has withdrawn. I would say the United States has wielded its power in different ways. The United States has been extremely unilateral, levying sanctions on all kinds of countries, even countries that are traditionally our allies. We have withdrawn from all, you know, we were not a great, great about signing up for international agreements already, but we've, we've withdrawn now from a kind of unprecedented number of them. So I, I think what's, what we've seen with Trump is not, as I think it's sometimes described, isolationism, but unilateralism, essentially the notion that American power should be bounded by no authority, legal or moral, beyond what America sees as is it in its own narrow self-interest. And I think that um, that has really eroded whatever was left of the belief in much of the world that the United States was pursuing a kind of common good in the world. It sounds like a more extreme version of what was already happening. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, it it is important to remember that, again, if you look at George W. Bush's administration, the Bush administration not only would not enter the International Criminal Court, which was designed to create an opportunity to prosecute war crimes and genocide because of the fear that we might one day be prosecuted, um, but it basically gave the United States the right to virtually take military action to ensure that the International Criminal Court never brought proceedings against the United States. And I just think we should stop there for a moment and think about that. So basically, the position of the United States is, by definition, our behavior should never be a subject to the to kind of international moral standards of, of human rights behavior. That's what Trump has done is, has essentially taken that logic and taken it even further. Um, but that logic has a deep history in American foreign policy. He did not invent it. Um, and, uh, and I think it's part of the reason that other countries look at the United States and say, on what moral authority do you claim to have to exercise the right of moral leadership to the world? I can understand why your argument may be hard for some people to accept, because part of it means accepting 
a little bit that America's maybe on the downslope. But then there's also this issue we're talking about now, which is the fact that Americans have behaved badly abroad and everyone seems to know it. And there's been no accountability. But it seems to me that to get people to accept the argument you're making, that America should have a little bit of a humbler role abroad, the first thing we have to do is convince Americans of that second part, of the fact that we didn't do such a great job. And sometimes it's obvious with Iraq and Afghanistan, and then I some, sometimes I think it's not. I, I would say, first of all, that it's interesting that if you look at polling uh, pretty consistently, Poland does not suggest that Americans want to withdraw from the world They do and have, have America have no role, but neither do they want America to be the single dominant force. Mostly what they want, uh, even if it sounds kind of soft and mushy, is cooperation. They want America to be one country cooperating with other countries. So they're actually, in public opinion, a surprising amount of support for this and surprisingly little support for the notion of America as the single dominant power, which is often something which is popular in in foreign policy circles. The second point I would make is that there is often a tendency in foreign policy discourse to associate America, the kind of America's global footprint, particularly its global military footprint, you know, who has more power in Syria or in the Caucasus, Russia or the United States, to associate that with the well-being of ordinary Americans. And I think if there's one one thing we can take away from from the Trump experience and the fact that he was elected, um, was that many Americans don't buy that necessarily, and, and they're right not to buy it. It is not necessarily the case that America having more influence in more countries around the world and having a larger military footprint in those countries necessarily benefits ordinary Americans. In some ways, it actually detracts from our ability to take care of things here at home. And one of the things that worries me about the Biden folks is that I see in their writing, you know, not a willingness to really look seriously at cutting the defense budget, but instead an effort to kind of talk about beefing up deterrence vis-a-vis China so we can compete with China in places like the South China Sea. And I think for an ordinary American who's just gone through the pandemic, surely the, the priority should not be Uh, um, the balance of military power in the South China Sea, but it should be whether the United States can build a welfare state that can literally keep our people alive. So I worry that the balance there is out of whack. You see Americans asking themselves, what is in it for me? What is in it for me in American global power? How is it actually benefiting me? And and a kind of skepticism of the easy equation that I think you often find that um, American, ordinary Americans are better off when the United States has a larger footprint around the world. It may well be that um, if America were to retract some of its military influence and power around the world and redeploy some of those resources and energy towards trying to build a more functional society at home, that actually Americans at home would benefit from that. Peter Beinart, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Peter Beinart is the editor-at-large at Jewish Currents. You can subscribe to his newsletter, The Beinart Notebook, over at Substack. 
And that's the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Daniel Hewitt, Elena Schwartz, and Davis Land. We are getting a ton of help right now from Franny Kelly. Thanks, Franny. We are led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow you can catch my podcast twin, Lizzie O'Leary. She's going to be in this feed with What Next TBD. And I'll be back here to say hey on Monday. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.